My name is Jessa, and I guess I'm a fucking addict. I made it six episodes without having to eat those words. Actually, I think in episode one, I I had kind of come back to maybe I am an addict and that there is a broad definition of addiction. But I was living in hella active addiction and didn't know it. So here's my story. I think there are a lot of definitions of the word codependent. And because of that, and because it's not something, when I think of codependence, I either think of like the co-alcoholic definition where it's the person who enables the addict, or I think of just people who don't ever want to be away from their significant other. And I never really looked into it much further than that. I never identified as someone who attached to people. A lot of my identity is about how I don't attach. I don't. I didn't feel attached to my first child so much that I obsessed over it all the time and gave her up for adoption for a while because I didn't think I loved her the way that I was supposed to love her. And I was so paranoid when I went and had more kids in 15 years that I wasn't going to attach to them right, that I bought books on attachment parenting. And I am grateful that I did that. Because I believe I parented them in a way that may prevent them from having insecure attachment issues. But I was doing it for me. I was doing it because I believed myself to be broken. I'm someone who was known to be very incapable of affection and not sensitive or emotional. And if I ever did cry, everyone's like, oh, my God, Jessa's crying. And I really liked those things about myself. I was really proud of that identity I really looked down on people who attached and couldn't find their way out of attachments. I felt like emotions were weak. And I wasn't like, don't ever have a feeling. I felt like I had feelings, but I processed them really fast through logic. And so if I took a hit, then I would feel the loss for a minute, and then my logical mind would show up, and my overall belief about life is that everything is always happening in my favor. Even loss and suffering and change and all of this, it it eventually will work out in my favor. And so once I get to that point of acceptance, like I, te- I don't even go through the stages of grief. I just forgive and forget and accept and I'm fine. And I, I, I felt like that was evolved of me. I, th- I thought that this was a superior trait And I didn't feel the sensation of stuffing because when I think about people that stuff, I think when people take a loss, they're going through a breakup and they drink, I always feel like in movies, that always bothered me. Even when I drank, I felt like, man, that's a bad idea. I don't think you should drink when something bad is happening. I don't think you should use. I don't think you should check out because the bone's not going to set right. You have to experience that. You have to go through that pain. And I just never felt like I was someone who was afraid of pain. I've definitely been through pain, and I just cycle through things very fast. And that's all I knew to be true about myself. I can look back on my early relationships, my first marriage. I was definitely very, very anxiously attached. There was a lot of getting cheated on in that relationship. And we were kids, and he, I don't think... Uh, felt the same way about me or whatever. And I 
felt like that relationship going full-blown toxic was the release the reason that my next long-term relationship went toxic and for a long time I believed that that person the sensation that I had about that second boyfriend was that he he brought me here and then left me was how I described that love like we we met and it was immediate it was immediate he I knew I was already in the the alien stuff I believed myself to be Osiris, the god Osiris. I don't have time to explain that. But I was knew Isis was going to come by the end of July. You know, this is a regular old love story. And on the last day of July, this five foot six dude shows up with sunglasses on to bring me some drugs from my friend and is trying to charge me like retail. And I'm like, that's my best friend. He's not charging me retail. And he argued and we went back and forth for a couple of minutes. And then I was like, why do I feel weird? Cause I, I hated him. I thought he was a fucking twerp. This is our first time meeting, but I felt this crazy connection. And I was like, why do I feel weird right now? And he said, I know who you are. And ever since I was a little kid, I could talk to these beings and they would do whatever I wanted them to do. And I said, take your sunglasses off. And he took his sunglasses off. And I looked down at the magazine with the picture of the goddess Isis that I was waiting for, because of course I'm Osiris. And he had the same eyes from that magazine. And I knew. And I said, you're my boyfriend now. You live here. Now, that is a beautiful Jessa love story. It's very similar to all of my experiences with love. My first husband, I met, I was 15. I went home and told my mom, I'm going to marry him. And I married him in less than a year. And I then fell in love with an asshole drug dealer who way later got clean and tracked me down across the country and became my husband for uh, a long time. And that, he was a douche when we were on drugs, but that marriage was this fully functioning love relationship that wasn't toxic. We never fought. Everything was great and easy. I wasn't preoccupied by it. I wasn't obsessed with it. I didn't think he was mad at me all the time. Early in the relationship, I actually was worried that all those things were missing. And I tried to break up with him because I was like, I don't think this is love. Love usually feels like obsession or fear for me. And this just feels boring. I don't think I love you. And then he was like, cool, bitch. I'm moving to Chicago. And then I was like, oh, okay, there it is. There's the heartbreak. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. False alarm. And we built this beautiful life together. And it didn't have a ton of romance or sparks or whatever. But as a result, I had developed this theory that sparks are just pre-toxicity, that if you're looking for that chemistry, the chemistry will turn into toxicity. And what you actually need is a compatible partner who will compliment you and help you because this relationship gave me the ability to go out into the world and do whatever I want because it was just a solid home base. And when I was in the rafters, he would pull me down. When he was in the rafters, I would pull him down. We picked each other up off the floor. We were each other's uh, cheerleaders and, and, and helpers. But then like I would go on the road for 10 days and we wouldn't talk. 
because we didn't need to. There was no there was no jealousy. There was no if we hit a, a rough patch, we just got through it together. We never said disrespectful shit to each other. We'd get in like one fight a year. It was almost like we needed to burn off some energy. And it was just a fantastic relationship. And then he got into a car accident and his personality changed. And he was someone who suddenly had like more emotional needs than the person who I had been with. And I wasn't able to meet those needs. And I wasn't an emotional person. I wasn't a nurturing person. And I didn't, that dynamic didn't work for us. And so things went south fast. They went bad. And this all happened within a couple months of me filming This Is Not Happening. And so right as I'm like, I need to move to LA. This is it. My career is finally taking off. Um, My marriage is falling apart. And I guess I didn't have time to deal with it. I guess that my, my brain just did the thing that my brain does, which is like, this is way too painful to deal with. We are going to compartmentalize this and move this over here. I then met my podcast partner at a comedy festival. We had met before and it was nothing, but we met again and uh, it's the end of the marriage. My husband already has a new girlfriend. We're still living together, but it's like this dead thing. And we're in the process of surrendering to that. And when I surrender, I like I radically accept things. I radically accept loss. And I don't give myself any time to feel feelings. Because in my head, this is how black and white everything was. In my head, if I was sad, I would stay with him, right? Like, I don't want to stay with him. In October, I still didn't know. But like by the end of the marriage, I was like, I don't want to stay with him, so I must not be sad. And... I never understood people like they're sad about their divorce. And I'm like, well, if you met them today, are you sad about the fantasy of what it used to be? Or are you sad about right now? Because if you met them today, would you want to be with them today? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, then why are you sad? There's nothing to be sad about. And I really took that approach to myself. I wasn't giving myself any space to feel these feelings. I didn't have time to feel these feelings. I was, you know, uprooting my entire life and moving across the country and trying to get this career off the road. I had this kind of faded sensation with the person who later became my podcast partner. And we had this crazy magical connection. And it was more romantic than anything I had ever experienced. I don't, I'm not good with intimacy or affection or anything. And this immediately had all of these things that were way on the other side of anything like that that I had ever experienced. He, on the other hand, and I didn't understand this about him till later, he is someone who is very naturally intimate and affectionate and romantic without even trying. And so he can be on his first Tinder date and have this experience. But to me, I was like, this is the shit movies are made of. And so we immediately kind of have this disconnect and there is this connection between us. And after we leave the festival, I'm just kind of like, that was cool, whatever. And whatever, lines get crossed and I get rejected. And leading up to this point in my life, I had since childhood made it to where nobody could ever reject me. You could never reject me because I would never put myself out there. I would never put the cards on the table I would indirectly communicate. I would lead you to tell me how you felt before I would say that. 
And there was a miscommunication between us where I thought he had already said it. And so then when I kind of mirrored that back to him, he was like, oh, no, no, I don't think about you like that. I don't think of you like that. And this was the first just shattering of an armor that I like nobody had ever gotten close enough to do that to me. And it triggered what I now know to be a profound codependent reaction. Because now looking back, I became obsessed with undoing this rejection. And it's a strange thing when you when you realize something about yourself and then it's almost like you can go back and hear your thoughts again. And they were like thoughts that were taking place that I didn't even hear in my head. Like I can go back and, and hear them now, but it's like partitioned off because I didn't believe myself to be the kind of person that attaches. I didn't realize how obsessively I had attached to this person. And he really liked me and he cared about me and he loved me as more than a friend, but not that much more than a friend. And so we became inseparable. We were living on opposite coasts, but we talked constantly. And I, a part of my brain just started crunching numbers, trying to figure out where I stand at all times, looking constantly for clues that I was wanted or not wanted, wanted or not wanted. And the idea of the podcast comes up. We decide to start working on the podcast. This is all perfect for me because this all fits into my narrative that he wants to be with me. And we start getting together to record the podcast. The friendship is a lot of things and uh, we're banging and whatever. And But my brain, I have not had an hour in 20 months where I didn't think about this person. And um, in the beginning, it was a lot of like building him up and thinking about how great he was and thinking about how perfect we were for each other. And then it just kind of deteriorated into just obsession, obsessive loops for no reason. And I was constantly trying to prove my worth and I was constantly like trying to make myself invaluable. And I didn't even realize I was doing this. I was just like, these are Jessa things, right? Because I move very fast and I do a lot of things and we were bringing things to each other's table. And I wasn't thinking like, I thought we were in love. You know, I just like in my head was like, yeah, we're in love. And I didn't realize that I was trying to control the situation, that I was obsessed with controlling his thoughts and his perception. And Weird things started to happen about six months in. Every time we were away from each other, I would get physically sick. I would end up with these like crazy leg cramps to where I couldn't even walk or like flu-like symptoms. Or I would have entire weekends filled with anxiety. And I hadn't had anxiety in 20 years. And suddenly I'm either anxious or depressed. I'm constantly preoccupied. I'm terrified of being left or being unwanted. If he left a text on red, I'm like what did I do? I'm replaying everything. And I, I can't just say, are you mad? Because I don't, I can't even admit to myself that I'm worried about that. So then I would act out in anger and all of this stuff is so out of character. And as things progress and they deteriorate and he kind of becomes my boyfriend on and off a couple times, he can't figure out what he believes or what he feels. And I had a lot to do with that. And he's someone who needed space sometimes. And I'm someone who needs space. I'm someone who needs a lot of space. And 
Every time he needed space, it felt like I was being punished. It felt like it was over forever. I felt like a a child being abandoned, and I couldn't fucking figure it out. All of this was so contrary to everything that I knew to be true about myself. It felt like it was his fault. It has to be his fault. It has to be something he's doing. He's jerking me back and forth. He needs to give me more consistency. I need these things. And now suddenly, I need everything that I need to soothe myself and feel better and have my needs met. I need this person to provide it to me. And I already know this shit. Like, I already know that that ain't how the world works. I'm someone who had high self-esteem, and now I'm now I'm Googling fucking plastic surgery, and meth piss comes out, and there's a million people that love me, and a bunch of people that want to date me, and none of them matter. I'm just circling this same fucking person that doesn't know whether or not he loves me. And that's not talking shit on him at all. Uh, he didn't feel like he did, but I was like, oh, you do. Um, and he trusted me and respected me and, and tried it on a few times. And I didn't, there were a couple red flags. There were a couple things that happened to where I was like, I think if this person experiences happiness and it's not through me, I can't handle it. I can't deal with it, which is so gross. Like that's such a gross thing to admit. And it was a very difficult thing to admit to myself. So it was never anything I said out loud. It was, I noticed a pattern in myself that if he was happy and it didn't have anything to do with me, that I would sabotage it. Other things I noticed were if he was sad and it didn't have anything to do with me, I felt like a failure if I couldn't make him happy. I projected a lot of things onto him by like telling him what to do and telling him how to manage his life and shit. But it was always like motivated by what I wanted. And we were on the road together a couple weeks out of the month. And then we had all this like on and off relationship stuff happening. And I felt like I was taking most of the blame. He felt like he was taking most of the blame. And the reality, he was he was taking a lot of it. And I was miserable. And then he would become my boyfriend. And I would sleep all the time. Like as soon as I got him, I couldn't stay awake. And I never did figure out that part, but there were just, I wasn't happy when we were together. I also wasn't happy. And at one point I thought to myself, if I met this dude today, would I think that he was perfect for me? Now there is a powerful connection. There is a powerful, we did come into each other's lives to probably have this experience and we do, we have mad chemistry and and it's great for the podcast. But then when I would try to play the tape forward, is this like a good life partner for me? I go a thousand miles an hour. I need someone that can match that because otherwise it's, it's, it's like all fun and games in the beginning. And then it like, it just, it's a bad match. And, um, he needs someone that can go slower. You know, he's, you know, he thinks before he acts and, um, there's a million other reasons why we weren't that compatible. And so I could, I could realize that if he would admit that he wasn't in love with me or that that was best for him, I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't deal with that reality. It was, it was incomprehensible. And so I had to keep this going. I had to keep this relationship going. I had to see it through. And Another thing besides the rejection, besides like this long, long, long spiral to prevent the inevitable rejection was 
fear of loss because at one point he started dating somebody that he was excited about. And then I was just getting less attention from him. He was talking to me less. And I've lost a bunch of friends to girlfriends, you know, as is natural. And in the beginning with him, I didn't, I remember thinking, I like exactly what we have. And then I remember thinking a thought that didn't become conscious until recently that, oh, if he gets a, if I'm not his girlfriend, then he gets a girlfriend and I get pushed out. And so none of this is love. And this is not, not healthy. And it's all triggered by loss. It's all triggered by fear of loss. And what ended up happening was I became very, very compulsive. And I had this kind of cycle on my phone where I would go look at all his social media pages, which doesn't even make sense because the dude posts like once a month. And uh, it was a need to see him. It was a need to like touch him because he lives in a different state. And um, I like needed to keep him in constant conversation so that I could gauge how he felt and see if he was mad at me. And so we went through a lot of stuff. I read a lot of books during this. I uncovered a lot of stuff. I uncovered that I have a fear of being unwanted. I got back to where that was in my childhood. I uncovered that I do actually have an anxious, preoccupied attachment style. All of these revelations were devastating because they didn't fit the identity that I believed myself to be. I believed myself to be incapable of attachment and aloof because that's so fucking cool. And now I'm like admitting like, oh, I have emotional needs relationships aren't going to be easy for me and I need a certain type of person to be in a relationship with who can meet these needs. And I have to tell people up front that like, uh, I'm going to act like a caged animal until I feel safe. And I thought we'd kind of reached the bottom of that trauma onion. And then our last go at the relationship, neither one of us were happy. I was finally ready to admit that I wasn't happy and that this wasn't it. And we decided to break up and we decided to not see each other for six months. Sorry, six weeks. It was as long as we could go without recording podcasts. And during that, I had a series of revelations or kind of realizations about it, but I couldn't get rid of that compulsive behavior. And it felt very addict behavior to me. And I did a lot of research trying to figure out what it was. I talked to my therapist. I talked to a friend that's a therapist and nobody was giving me the right words. And then as I shared on a previous podcast, codependent kept coming up in tarot readings, thank God, because then when I looked that up, the description that I'm going with is in a book, Codependent for Dummies, which is so dorky, but of all the codependency books I've read, I've um, read so far, that was the, the best description of it. But it's very similar to addiction. It's almost an addiction to another person. And it is needing to control another person to feel better about yourself. And I cease to exist in any way other than through him. And I didn't do anything without thinking about what he would think about it and how he would feel about it. And that sounds like self-sacrificing, but a lot of times it wasn't. It was just sick and weird. I invaded his boundaries. I didn't let him have his space when he needed it because it felt like a minute, felt like 10 hours. And I felt like I was being punished. And a lot of codependency is about kind of trying to outrun childhood wounds, basically, and and not identifying with your own self, but identifying through another person. 
and it's a lot and I'm still unpacking it. Just finding out what it was stopped the compulsion almost immediately. I was like, oh, when I thought when I looked at it as an addiction, like, oh, this is an addiction. This isn't real. This isn't love. This isn't destiny. This isn't fate. This is an obsessive, compulsive reaction to trauma. And what happened was this person rejected me and I had set up the system so that this would never happen. And then I just spiraled into this codependent obsession. Do I actually love him? I have no idea. Um, Right now, I don't feel any need to be with him. I don't feel any need to talk to him. We're still friends, but we used to talk all day. And now I don't need to respond to every message he sends. I'm not thinking about his thoughts. I'm not worried that he's mad at me. I I don't have any of this. I don't have any of this obsessive thinking. I don't have any of these crazy loops that I was on. And the more I read on the subject, I was like, okay, well, I can see how I got triggered, right? I got triggered into this and basically through a misunderstanding. And because I couldn't deal with the rejection, because if he rejected me, then that means I'm worthless, That means I'm not wanted. I'm not loved. And I have to prevent that. So I have to find a way to control this person and make them love me and make them not leave, even though I don't want this either. This isn't making me happy. And another thing involved in it is I think I was reeling. I was reeling from the loss of my marriage. I was reeling from the loss of the one good relationship and connection I had had in my life. And I didn't know that I was reeling. I didn't know that I was in excruciating pain and this person was going through a divorce and I made it all about fixing him and fixing his divorce because I couldn't I couldn't wrap my mind around my own loss. And I needed things with him to work out because if things with him didn't work out, then there wasn't a reason, like it was senseless that I lost my husband. And... A lot of this was just so subconscious, but once it all came to the surface, then I was like, oh, this is an aspect of me that I keep in my shadow. It's not how I deal with most people. With most people, I I deal with them either detached or, you know, with my normal set of rules and standards and boundaries and whatever. I have found that I have weak boundaries in a lot of ways. I let people... I don't let you close enough to me to fuck with my boundaries, but a lot of people that get close to me have figured out that I don't have great boundaries. I don't, I don't, I seem like someone who really stands up for herself, but I, if you get close enough to me, uh, what I will do is if you have intruded on my boundaries a couple of times, I just write you out of the script. And then people are like, I never knew why. Uh, you stop talking to me. And it's like, oh, you hurt my feelings a couple of times. And rather than being like, hey, don't do that again, I just will like cut you out. And um, I sometimes come back and sometimes I don't. And now I'm learning to assert myself and stand up for myself and use words to do that rather than why haven't you talked to me in three months? And I am learning that this is something that can get triggered in me. And I'm thinking back to past relationships. So obviously these, these first two relationships triggered as fuck, codependent as fuck garbage, toxic relationships. And I had a big role in that. 
And then I'm thinking about other times where I have felt obsessed. Like I woke up and the first thought in my mind was him. I went to sleep. The last thought in my mind was him. When you would ask me questions about myself, I would answer things about him. When I got offers for work stuff, now granted, we do great work together, but I found a way to write him in air. Like I was just, nothing could exist without him. And it was all I could think about. I was so preoccupied. I disconnected from my kids and was completely emotionally unavailable, mentally unavailable to them for almost a full year. Like I'm reconnecting with my kids right now. I'm remembering how to be their mom. I was just checked out. And now I look back at what it was like for my daughter, my first daughter, when I felt like I was a terrible mom and I was codependently activated on her dad. And now I think, oh, I wonder if I was broken and didn't know how to love or if it's just that I was so codependently fucked up over him. Same thing. I was emotionally unavailable to her. I realized two other times that I have been activated into this, one of which was I had gotten addicted to drug. She had gotten addicted to heroin at one point. And I was like six months clean. And if you've ever heard me talk about early recovery, this was the worst. This is like I was controlling everybody. I was just a judgmental piece of shit. I think it was like six months or a year in, I went out to visit her and noticed that she was strung out. And I don't even think she thought she was strung out because she thought she was doing a different drug. And I was like, well, that's black tar heroin. And I rescued her, which is a huge codependent thing. And I brought her back to Delaware and I was the manager of a fine dining restaurant. I gave her a job at the restaurant. I moved her into my dad's house. That's not her dad. We gave her a car and I kind of put her life together for her with an unspoken contract that now you are in recovery and we get to be friends. And I love this sister. She's very funny. I love all of my sisters and have had a codependent run in with two of them. She decided she wanted to drink because she's like eight years younger than me. She still wanted to party. She wasn't done. And I got so obsessed with controlling this situation and controlling her. And I'm yelling at dudes who drank with her. And I'm freaking out and trying to manage her and control her. And then I move her back to Portland with me. And then I'm furious because I can hear her brushing her teeth when she gets home at night. And I know that she's been drinking and I freak out on her and I kick her out of my house all under the guise of if you're using or drinking, you're going to make me relapse, which I knew wasn't true. But she leaves. It fucks up our relationship for a while. And I felt justified and everybody else would tell me I was justified because, you know, she chose to use or whatever. But deep down inside of me, I knew and later admitted that I really was just sad because I knew that if my sister was partying, she wouldn't be my friend. She wouldn't be available to be my friend. She wanted to party with her friends that drink and do drugs. And I was her sober sister who couldn't even be around that stuff. And so at the core of that, that need to control that situation wasn't about being afraid of her using. It was about, if you use, you'll leave me. And I knew that. I've known that for 10 years or whatever, that that was at the core of it. But now looking back through this new lens of codependency... I realized that once again, the prospect of loss was presented and that triggered my fear of abandonment, that triggered my fear of being unloved and being left. And 
to cope with that, I went into this codependent attachment, trying to control the situation, trying to rescue, trying to make that person bend that person to my will. The next time that it happened, it's also strange that it happens when people are in crisis, but the next time that it happened, my youngest sister got involved with a narcissist. And I've told this story on Mormon and the Meth Head, a little bit of it. But at this point, we had bought, we were living in houses that were down the block from each other. And at night when she would get off of work, she was working at the car dealership with my husband. And we were all kind of enmeshed in this social thing. This was in the beginning of the housewife phase for me. And I was lonely and probably had postpartum. And... When my sister would get home from work, I would go down to her house and she was going through a divorce, like just left her husband and moved into this house. And so for the first few weeks, it was great because I just like had my sister as my best friend. And then she got involved with a narcissist. And at first I was into it and it was cool. But then as he began to abuse her, um, she started to check out. She became less and less emotionally available and more and more... um, obsessed with him and he was jerking all around and she became she started hiding from me and I figured out what he was before everyone else did and I lost my fucking mind I think it was a full year and a half of me being utterly obsessed with my sister and this relationship and this guy and we need to get rid of this guy and I was right I was right but I read so many books and did so much research on fucking narcissists to try to run this guy out. I like plotted his fucking murder in my head multiple times. I fought with him. I did everything I could. All I fucking talked about was getting rid of this dude. I stalked her house when she said she wasn't going to talk to him anymore. And then she wouldn't answer my phone calls. And then I would be like out stalking her house like a psycho I was enmeshed in this situation. I could not let it go. I could not let her make her own decisions. And once again, I'm justified, right? Like I'm justified because I there's a wolf in the hen house. There is a narcissistic abuser destroying my sister. And that's my family and everything else. And I, I, I was justified. But the reality of it was that I did admit to her and myself was that I was threatened by it. Like it was a bad thing that was happening, but it was taking her away from me. She was leaving me. And the question here is if a healthy functioning relationship came along for her, would I have been triggered like that? I don't know. I don't know that I would have felt the loss. I think the loss of my one sister using, it was like a real loss. Like it was a real abandonment. Not abandonment because their experience isn't about me, but it was a real perceived abandonment. And if my sister had just like, you know, we were very close the entire time she was married. I think if a guy came along and she was just paying extra attention to a guy, it would have been fine. But he was like taking her apart. He was like dissecting her mind and she was losing herself and I was losing her. And I... I got triggered into this codependent thing where I'm acting. It is just like addiction. It is. I'm watching myself do things that are so contrary to everything I believe 
Everything I believe to be true about myself, everything I believe to be acceptable, everything I would be okay with someone else doing to me. I am not letting someone have space when I'm someone who needs space. And I remember just being like, none of this matches. None of this matches who I am. And then I would see my th- myself do awful things, compulsive things. And it was uh, a long time of me trying to figure out how to get out of it. And I described the sensation of this love being trapped in a house with no windows and no doors. And I actually had an experience leading up to us running into each other also during my um, the, the descent of my marriage that was very short-lived but also had that sensation. And I couldn't figure out what that sensation is. And it's, it's abandonment-triggered codependency. So when I read the book about codependency, I don't see those traits – in every relationship in my life. I think I am capable of healthy, normal relationships. I don't think I get into those situations easily. I think that I've had a couple of episodes, I guess. Like the thing with my sister getting clean was a couple months and maybe it was six months. And then we went on to have a normal functioning relationship. The thing with my sister and the narcissist It did a lot of damage to our relationship. I'm looking forward to calling her and talking to her about that. But then we went on to have, like, we rebuilt and have a normal relationship. And I can have friendships and relationships with people and not have it have any codependency. So I think that that has a lot to do. Like, it's I'm not a caretaker universally. I'm not someone who attaches universally. I think I am kind of sensitive to thinking that people are mad at me. But I think we all kind of do that in the text age. You know, someone doesn't return your text. You do like, oh, did I say something wrong? Whatever. But it doesn't turn into like crazy obsession ordinarily. The second I found this out, the fog started to lift and I had to face this. I had to face, I wasn't the victim in this scenario. I probably did more damage to him than he did to me. I think he triggered it, but I think it was a misunderstanding that triggered it. And then I was just in this in this fog. And the shame and guilt of that, I felt like, oh, if I admit this, like he won't even be my friend anymore. And uh, I was fortunate enough in that conversation to find out that this wasn't news and that he had known it the entire time and did somehow love me and care about me enough to just let me figure it out on my own. And, um, after that conversation, the symptoms just kind of went away. I don't, it's very strange after a year and a half of, even during the breakup, we didn't talk for a week. It just, I, it never stopped. The compulsion never stopped. I didn't have anywhere to go because we'd blocked each other on social media for a while, but like the compulsion never stopped. So I just had this compulsion inside of me and nothing to do with it. And it just stopped. And I never experienced this with drugs. I I didn't get to this boiling point with drugs. I definitely struggled with food during different times, but even my recovery from food was weird and gradual in a way that I can't say like, oh, here's the day that I conquered it. That was like a slow healing on top of I just became allergic to so many foods that it's fucking impossible for me to do damage with food anymore. 
But this was desperation, desperation. Like I tried every which way to stop this behavior and stop this obsession and just my mind felt plagued and I just felt chased and anxious and depressed and fucking tortured. And this is the, the, the stages of the disease of codependency and whatever. I'm probably butchering all the language of this, so don't talk shit. But from the book I read, and this is something I think there's a million definitions of, but the stages of the disease where it ends up being like the typical stages of addiction, where now it's just about feeding that addiction, but it feels terrible. So it's just like, I've pulled everything I can pull out of this person. I've got, he's giving me everything I want and I feel worse. I feel fucking worse. I'm trying to get this person to tell me I'm okay and make me feel okay. And every single thing offends me and every single thing is so awful and every single thing is so painful and I'm so mad and I'm a Words that I've used to describe, like I've I called it an infinite onion of trauma as I was trying to figure it out, because I'm just like someone who will not give up. I like that about myself. If I'm anxious, I will lay on the floor curled up and I'll be Googling books about the type of anxiety that I have and I'll download them to my phone and I'm curled up in the ball on the floor and I'm just reading books as fast as I can. And I'm just like, I will find the code. I will find the operator's manual to this malfunction. I will get the keys to this cage and I will get the fuck out of it. And uh, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot I had to figure out. What I have figured out is that at some point I got the impression that I wasn't wanted My parents got divorced. They lived on opposite coasts. They were on and off of drugs. And um, they both wanted me. It didn't seem like they wanted me. Like that wasn't my childhood impression on top of the way we talked to kids in the 80s and, and just the way the world was. I just got the impression that I was unwanted. And throughout my life, I created a persona that was that was pretty universally likable. And then I also developed kind of this armor where I didn't, like, I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care. And I do kind of still use that math to where, for the most part, if I like somebody, they like me back. Like, I know who my cup of tea is, and I'm usually there a cup of tea. I like people cut from a similar energetic cloth. I don't pick people according to their status or whatever. So I don't, I don't get a lot of mixed match things. If you don't like me, odds are I don't give a shit. And um, what I found in this journey is that I don't know what my feelings are. My mom had a weird thing where you couldn't make a face if you were disappointed. Like she took everything was like a disrespect thing, which was just how she was raised. And it was also the age back then. This dumb fucking adults are always right shit. And so when she would say something that was disappointing and I would make a disappointed face or a startled face or whatever. And she'd be like, get that fucking look off your face. And something I noticed as an adult is that if you hurt my feelings, you're not going to know it. And I probably won't know it. And in the last year and a half, I've noticed when my feelings would get hurt in this dynamic, uh, if it was face to face, I just wouldn't, my face wouldn't change. I wouldn't emote at all. I would take the hit and then just like, just kind of stoically whatever. And I realized I got to the core of it and I got to the core of this feeling of wanting to be, or this fear of being unwanted. 
And I remembered all of these weird compulsive habits I had as a kid. I would keep the adults talking constantly because I needed to hear the inflection of their voice and watch their body language to know whether or not I was wanted. And if it got quiet, then I would feel unwanted. It was just like this this doom and gloom would take over me and this like this pressure. And then I would I would ask a question or I would make a statement and then I would be able to tell just by the inflection in their voice whether or not I was wanted or if they were mad at me. And I didn't do that. Sometime in my 20s, I died. I, I, I fell in love with myself, whatever. And I stopped doing that. And this codependent episode brought that back. And at one point, I was like, why am I texting this person so much? Like, why am I sending him a screenshot of every fucking single thing I see? It's because I sent a text that I think maybe made him uncomfortable. And now he, he gave me a one word answer. And I don't know what that one word answer means. So I need to send several more texts so I can see if I get an exclamation point or something. And so I was like doing this kind of ticking compulsive behavior again. And so I learned a lot of these things about myself. I figured out there are a ton of examples of times where I feel unwanted and I have a strange reaction and I don't realize what it is. I um, have social anxiety, which is all tied up in that. I flail at the cash register when they give me my money back. I can't handle that one minute not even a minute, that 30 seconds of putting my money back in because I feel the pressure of the person next in line doesn't want me there, the cashier doesn't want me there. And just that tiny window of people not wanting me, I always freak out, I drop all the money, like I flail the fuck out in that situation. And it was as I was uncovering all this stuff way before I realized like codependency was kind of the umbrella of all of it. And so that was the gift of this relationship and the the gift that is pain, you know? Uh, I, I hope that every time I have a painful life experience, like I learned about myself and I grew, and this is a huge game changer for me because I still have 10 months left, no sex, no dating. Now I'm more committed to it than ever because I don't think I would have figured this out. I caught myself several times in the last month starting to flirt starting to send flirtatious texts because I needed that. Like I needed that. I was, I was getting anxious. I was feeling scared. It was time to start facing things and I didn't want to do it. Like I wanted to connect to someone. I wanted to feel alone. You start to have thoughts like what if I start this year and it lasts forever and nobody ever wants me again and whatever. And now I feel like I have to process this whole thing and then I have to recognize that this is the thing that can get triggered. And I need a specific kind of person and a specific kind of relationship. I can't have a maybe. I can't have an in and out. I can't have a hot and cold. You know, I, I have to move slowly, which is very difficult for me. And I have to watch my own triggers and figure out my own stuff and stay. I don't know how I did it in that marriage. It was just the perfect combination of someone who was, because I am a very independent person. It's weird to say I'm codependent because it doesn't match who I am in life. But um, he just had a way of making me feel safe without being up in my shit. And I did like I just knew where I stood. And so I was just free to go do whatever else. But I think it's so funny that I was just so arrogantly like I'm not an addict. And then, you know, can't get through a podcast recording without checking my ex-boyfriend's social media. (laughs) Oh, I'm always a piece of shit. It's just just never never not a piece of shit on some level or another. I think that's all I have 
on that. Um, why did you go? Why did you decide on a year? By the way, I don't know if you've really explained that because you you say you're looking for a particular person, and if they came along earlier than that, what would be the thinking in not just going for it? That's a great question. A year is what was told to me when I realized I had an anxious, preoccupied attachment style. A friend of mine who was a therapist that specializes in this said, if you want to figure it out, take a year, no sex, no dating. And I was like, I'm not even taking the night. (laughs) I completely rejected the idea. And then three months later, I was so far, I was rock bottom with the compulsion and everything else that I felt like terrified. And I still right now am terrified that if I got into another relationship, I would end up in the same position because I haven't figured out the wiring under this board. More than that, I feel like I would go hurt somebody else. That like immediately in the breakup, I was like, I will just go eat somebody. I will give them a bunch of intimacy to take it, take something from them. I felt like I was going to hurt someone else. And In the trajectory thing where I I feel things like I knew that this is not happening was going to come out, even though they told me it wasn't, whatever. Something, someone's coming along in February. Something's happening in February. When I say a year, I feel a, a roadblock there. If someone came into my life and it felt faded or I felt a very strong connection, I would just be honest that I'm really trying to make it to May and, uh... If you like me that much, you can be my friend till May. Yeah, I don't mean to poke holes in this or anything. I know I'm one of the people who kind of insisted that you're never going to make it that far. But um, do you think that this is putting too much pressure on the first one that comes along after a year? Uh, No. I don't know what that's going to look like. Dating and sex and everything else has always just been, I meet you and we move in together the next day. And... It usually works out to, like, long-term relationships. I guess when Jason moved to Delaware, I made him live in a sober house for a while and, you know, like a year, and that was pretty responsible of me. And I guess maybe I would go for something like that again. I don't even know what I want. I don't know what I want. I'm I'm excited to actually be on my own for a while. Do I want a kind of a family unit for my kids in the future? I don't know. I'm attracted to younger guys, and they don't, you know— have the ability to contribute to the mortgage. So I don't know what what it'll be in a year. And if it'll be a woman, I don't know. Maybe it'll be nobody. Maybe I'll take five years, you know? I don't think so. I think now everything, I'm like, is that codependent? But I'm someone that does better with another person because um, I'm a lot. I float off into the the sky very easily. So it's it's better for me to have the grounding of a partner. I think I prefer to have a partner, but I don't know. It's not so rigid that if something happened in April, but I think right now, like the stuff that I'm unpacking right now, if someone came along before February, just hit me up in six months. I don't know. I'm not ready. Like I am, this is a mess and I can never go through this again. And so a person, sex is easy. Like we made those jokes, but I don't give a fuck about sex. Like I don't, it's not easy for me. Sex is a hard, you know, it's not easy for me to, to do that. I don't have casual sex. I don't know how to have casual sex. If I have casual sex with you, I'll never talk to you again because it, it, it just makes me feel guilty and ashamed. Um, I don't, like it's, there's, there's no point. 
So, and I don't have like spontaneous, all of a sudden sexual experiences. I mean, I think that's kind of what made me fall for him was because we kind of had that at Big Sky, but that hasn't happened to me in 20 years. I would have to like go out on a date to seek that out. And um, I just won't do that. So it's, it's pretty easy. Keeping people away from my body is the easy part. I think falling in love with somebody's personality is more likely to happen. But now I'm so going to be so hyper. I'm afraid that it's going to ruin. It's going to have the opposite effect. It's going to ruin love for me because I'm going to hyperanalyze it. Like, is this love? Is this codependency? Am I, is it real? Is it, it's going to take all the fun out of it. I think that's far more likely than, is that what you meant by pressure? Yeah, something like that. Um, I'm also curious if you feel like you've gotten anything out of it so far. You said you're at about two months. And other than just like the normal passing of time after you're with somebody. I don't think I would have figured this out. I think if I would have started dating somebody else, if I would have started even fucking someone else, uh, I wouldn't have figured this out. There were multiple nights where people almost got text messages from me, like, can I just come lay in your bed? Like, there were multiple nights where I was like, I cannot sit in this space. And I wouldn't have realized the things that I realized. I wouldn't have been compulsively watching those videos. It, I was just trying to get something else in my head besides this obsessive. I felt like a drug addict going through withdrawal for weeks at the beginning of the breakup. And then I kind of hit a, uh, a spot where I felt like I accepted it. I did the thing where I pushed myself into acceptance and then moved on. And then um, he was still sad about the breakup. And then that kind of just started this thing in my head. Well, if he's sad, then he is in love, like whatever. Cause you know, I only have two categories of reason. If you're sad, you want to get back together, whatever. And I forced myself not to ask to get back together, but I did want to like talk more, I think, cause I wanted to poke that. And he was like, I need more space. And then when he wanted like real space, I, we weren't talking a lot. We we're like emailing once a day, but I, I got triggered again. I got triggered into this this loss and this abandonment. And then we went a full seven days without speaking at all and communicating in any way blocked on social media. And that was the only time during the whole breakup that we didn't talk about work, nothing. And prior to the breakup, we had never gone. I think one time we went 24 hours without talking because he was camping. But other than that, we had never like without like some communication. And um, it felt every minute was an hour and it was, it was, I couldn't deal. I could not fucking deal. And if I had a hookup or a fuck buddy or somebody that would have just like let me lay in his bed, I wouldn't have gotten to that point. Like I had to just sweat it out and go through that withdrawal and, um, and feel every second of that pain to come to the realization that I came to. And so absolutely. Absolutely. I've gotten so much out of the first two months that I'm like now excited for the first year or for the whole year. And I get it. She told me she was like, you will know yourself by the end of this year. You don't know yourself. By the end of this year, you will know yourself. And that's absolutely true. You take that stimulation away. So how much of this do you think is just challenging yourself versus um, this is where your head's at? Your uh, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here against the idea. He's lying. He wants me to date him. <laughs> you know, the the old um, 
the best way to get over someone is to get under somebody else. Yeah, I'm a huge... Historically, has that ever been helpful to you? I'm a huge rebound addict. Uh, uh, Well, both. Advocate. I've always been like, just go find somebody else. You won't stay with them. I used to think it was cool to tear through people, other people's emotions. I just thought it was fine to go eat some dude while I'm hurting over somebody else. I thought it was fine for me to date people while I was dealing with the Aaron stuff. And then I just watched myself not be nice, not considerate, uh, start to care about people. But like, I'm not not like that, you know, and then I'm just using them to feel better about somebody else and justifying it like, well, I told you that that's what it was. But I would talk shit if a dude was doing that to a woman, you know. And I didn't realize how much of it was a Band-Aid until I didn't have it as an option. And I was getting everything in this relationship from an external source. Like I lost the ability to soothe myself. I lost the ability to have high self-esteem because of myself. I suddenly needed someone else to think I was pretty, that I was smart, that I was funny. And I had just for a long time, while my body type wasn't right and I didn't have teeth and I was gross and I was all these things, I was a pretty confident person who was like, I'm, I'm comfortable with what I bring to the table. You like it or you don't. I don't really care. I'm pretty enough. You know, I'm not the standard of beauty, but like, I don't, you know, I would, I'd rather have a good personality. I was like confident. And then I was in this relationship where I didn't feel wanted and I didn't feel attractive enough. I remember just being at like a Christmas party where he wasn't even there and like hating all these girls. Cause I was like, oh, he would think she was pretty. He would think she was pretty. Like that's so fucking bananas. That's so a thousand miles away from how I used to see myself, how I do see myself. And I just don't know how anyone being in the mix. First of all, if I touch you, if I make out with you, if we hook up in any way, we have triggered all my shit. And um, I usually don't have sex with anybody because I can't deal with it. You know, I make up a million excuses. But in the reality is I know that if I don't start crying while we're having sex, I will go home and cry all night. And it just triggers a bunch of shit for me. So it's real easy to skip that part. And that happens with women also. It's just I don't know. I, uh, this is something that was very special about him as it didn't happen with him, you know. But I'm going to add all that. I don't even know what all that is. That's like probably what I'll do after a year is start trying to figure that out. I think I might just not be a casual sex person, which is fine because it's usually bad sex. Anyway, who gives a fuck? That reminds me of, I guess, my final question of the evening. Um you're particularly on Mormon and the Method. You like to change your entire philosophy on relationships every week. Yeah. Do you, where where are you right now? On like monogamy and stuff. Yeah, or like what is your definition of dating somebody? Because I I remember there had been times where you'd say, now we're boyfriend and girlfriend, and I'd say, oh, so you're monogamous now, and you'd say no, and of course I just kind of let it go because I'm familiar with I I don't know. You're, yeah. You're changing thoughts, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, what are you what are you feeling now? What do you think is the way to go? I think that ultimately in our final stage of evolution, we will all be capable of loving multiple people and that it'll just kind of become the norm. And I always want to be at the highest stage of evolution and really wanted to get into that non-monogamous 
space. I have been very hurt by monogamy. And I philosophically am non-monogamous. I personally, in practice, am pretty monogamous because I just don't have a, a high need for variety and, you know, sex is a, is a minefield. I don't philosophically have an issue with my partner having other partners. Philosophically, I would love to live in a world where we love multiple people. When I tried to put that into practice in this relationship, because I was so codependent, it didn't work. I didn't feel better when we had an open relationship. And so it did become monogamous at one point because we were trying to find a setting that didn't make me feel like shit. Monogamy didn't fix it either. And so philosophically and in practice are two different things. I think that even in an ideal utopia where we are all non-monogamous, I think that most relationships should start monogamous. I think you should build that foundation, get that trust, get that comfort, work out any attachment issues, and then see if you are ready to add to it. My marriage was non-monogamous and it was fine. And everyone was fine. And by the end, you know, he was in love with someone else. Would I have been okay with that if we weren't falling apart? I can't really say, but I saw the potential for a safe and secure relationship where she met needs that I wasn't interested in meeting. And I didn't feel threatened because I knew he wasn't, he never would have left, you know, he never would have left me for her. And um, even if he did, if that's where he wanted to be, like, I just had a piece about it. I did not have a piece about nothing in this fucking dynamic. He couldn't like an Instagram post, which is very embarrassing to admit, without it making me feel unwanted. And that is just about codependency. It's just about um, an addictive approach to love and all based in this kind of trauma and shit that's just not healthy. And so basically trying to date would be trying to use in moderation right now. So it just makes sense that I can't. And I think trying to have a non-monogamous relationship in my first relationship off the bat or whatever would be the would be like having a month clean and try to go to the bar with your friends. You know, I have limitations and I know that now. And I have things that can get triggered and I just understand how I need to ease into anything in the future. I need to watch out for evidence of this. If you're a guy that plays games or a girl that plays games and jerks me around one time, that's it. I'm not like I'm not capable of fucking with someone not saying that's what he did. But now I know moving forward where I'm ordinarily someone that's like, oh, we'll give you a few chances. I know like not to risk that. And not to pick someone who's kind of unavailable. And I feel like everyone's a fucking avoidant now. So I'll just stay single. And um, I think I'll probably just end up, I don't know. I say I'll probably end up staying single, but I can already tell that that's not true. It's, there's something just like beacon it in February. So um, hopefully I just attract something that lines up with the boundaries and the self-worth that I'm resonating at by that point, you know, which is kind of how my wor world works out. All right. You can find me at Jessa Reed Comedy on Twitter and Instagram. You can find this podcast on so at Soberish Pod on Twitter and also Instagram. Remember, it's not Soberish Podcast. If you like podcasts and you haven't checked out Mormon and the Meth Head yet, do that. Uh, start at episode one. You won't regret it. And that's it until next week. <laughs>